We're recording. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird tastes. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly, if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating, almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now here's the show. Hey, John. Hey, Mike. What's on your mind this week? I just wanted to start with a little bit of follow-up. Oh, yes. So I was thinking about our conversation, I don't know, several episodes ago. Mm-hmm. It was this discussion that we had about learning and how learning works and how your memory right. works. The fact that you have to go to sleep to kind of set your memories into long-term memory. So anything you learn during the day, you go to sleep, you allow it to kind of set because that's what your mind does. It consolidates right. as you sleep. That's a little purpose or one of the purposes of sleep and then you can learn more the next day you think that would work for naps oh it absolutely does yeah yeah yeah. Hmm, fascinating this is one of the reasons why i think if you study really hard if you're trying to quote-unquote cram like mm-hmm. the way to do it is to study for two or three hours take a nap study for two or three hours take another nap because you will be mentally exhausted after two or three hours of intense studying and napping will allow you to consolidate that and if you nap for about an hour, hour and a half, you will get almost all of the benefits in terms of your memory that you would from a full night's sleep. Now, obviously, that doesn't give you all of the benefits of being rested. Like, there's a lot more to sleep than just memory consolidation. But right. just from a strictly kind of memory perspective, that will do most of what you need it to do. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Like, it's really nice to tinker around with these things and to think about them because you can really squeeze a lot more out of your learning and your learning time, get a lot more efficiency if you just do a few things slightly better. Right. So back on topic, back on topic. Sorry. Yes, it's I all good. I was wondering about the nap thing. There's an analogy that I was thinking about with this, and it's like you're painting something. So imagine you're painting uh-huh. a house. Okay. Everybody close your eyes. <laughs> okay. So you're painting a house. You want to put four layers of paint, right? Mm-hmm, we're painting the house. So I think there's the old allegory that like if you're a small child, you might, instead of painting four coats, you're just going mm-hmm. to paint one really thick coat and it'll do the same thing, right? Right. The problem with that in practice for anybody that's ever painted anything is that when you paint just a really thick coat, if it ever peels off, it or if it ever gets damaged in any way, that will wear out and then all of the paint will rip off because it's one thick, heavy layer. That completely defeats the purpose of painting multiple coats. If you're painting multiple coats, you have to give time in between to let the coats dry. And once they've dried, even Mm -hmm. with the weather and even with the outer coat peeling off, all of the rest will still remain under it. And you'll still have the protection that that paint provides. And this is similar to memory in that once you've allowed your memories to kind of coalesce into long-term memory, you will forget aspects of it. You will forget things that you just recently learned. But, but it's already reinforced. It's already reinforced, and it's already kind of embedded in a deeper way, in a more solid way, and you're much less likely to forget things because aspects of it have already been embedded. And so if you're learning about something like French history, learning a little bit today ah, and yes. a little bit tomorrow and a little bit the next day, like that will allow you to remember it and remember the things you learned on earlier days much better, 
even if you forget the stuff you learned more recently. Mm. That's just an analogy that's been petering around in my head for the last, I don't know, while now. Um, just had to get it out there. I did, I did. Because yeah. I, th- I think it illustrates it really nicely. Because I think it's a, it's a bit hard when you're thinking about the brain and the mind and memory yeah. and learning. Like, all of those are very abstract kind of things. Right. Yeah, now I got you. That makes sense. And I think it's a useful analogy. Thank you. <laughs> people who are trying to figure out how to better retain information. So, you know, be mindful of that. I also did have something I wanted to complain about. I had a little bit of a peeve Ooh. this week. Okay. So I'm always one to complain about something, but more and more I've been annoyed of late by people who just take up the whole path when they're walking. Irish people in Ireland specifically. No, people, people everywhere. I've been running into it here because I live here, but (laughs) I've run into this all over Asia. I run into this all the time in the States. just trying to cover up his secret hatred for Ireland. That's all he's doing right now. (laughs) Clearly, that's the only possible solution. (laughs) Yeah, so he means all people, but specifically he's talking about Irish people that do this. Okay, John. I think think it's become more noticeable to me here because a lot of their sidewalks and paths and things are a little bit narrower. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if you're walking two people wide, like mm-hmm. two people abreast, and you take up the whole path, you drive the other person to the street, essentially, going the opposite direction. Another criticism of Irish architecture right here at play. <laughs> well, like, this is not a problem in Los Angeles because there's never anybody else on the street. No oh, one else fair. is ever walking, and the sidewalks are fairly wide, so there's no issue. <laughs> it's like, oh, empty sidewalks and nice wide sidewalks. Perfect. But... There's, you know, obviously other problems that cause people to never walk in Los Angeles. Right. But it's this constant annoyance for me, especially now where spring has come. It's getting a bit uh-huh. warmer. We're having a lot more sunny days. A lot more people are out and about. And you will be walking. And even if you're on a nice wide path in a park or something, mm. yeah. you'll have four people coming at you. And they'll be spread all the way across, all four people in like a straight line, just trying to prevent you from walking past them. And I just don't mm. understand what the mindset is where you're like, no, we get to take up all this space, and and you know what it you know what really the core of this <laughs> my complaint is, and this this ah. is something that I first really ran into all the time when I moved to Korea, okay. because Koreans, I mean, like the rest of the world at this point, but them more than any other group I've ever seen are just tuned into their phone all the time. Ah, uh huh. And there, I would see so often people come to the top of an escalator. They would get off the escalator and stop to look at their phone. And everyone else behind them has to get off the escalator. And they're blocking the escalator. And it's it's just this total lack of spatial awareness around you and where you are and getting out of people's way and not just blocking everyone. That just genuinely seems like an inconsiderate thing to do. They know where they are. They were on the escalator two seconds ago. They're not morons. I'm telling you, people are oblivious. They don't even think about it. Mm. Their phone vibrated, so they looked at their phone, and that was as far as it went. It's not any better if they keep walking as they look at their phone either, because I run into people here all the time who are, like, walking slowly as they look at their phone, and you're watching them walk towards you. You're trying to avoid them, and they just kind of half walk into you. They don't notice you until you're, like, a foot away Mm -hmm. because they're looking down. That sort of thing is no better. When I see someone doing that and they're walking my direction, I just walk a little faster towards them Mm. because I really like to startle people. They'll see you (laughs) right as you're, like... Uh. 
six inches from them. Right. They'll look up and they'll right, be like, right, eh, right. maybe if you weren't looking at your phone and walking, this would never happen. People on their phones as they're walking and moving around, especially when they're driving, like it's it's a real problem. But I think this just mm. lack of spatial awareness around you as you're walking and as you're moving, it bothers me. Mm-hmm. Like because I run into this where, like earlier today, I was walking into town and right. there was this woman walking in the sidewalk and it's wide enough probably for two people and she was walking right mm-hmm. in the middle and it's like if you walk oh. right in the middle i can't go around you why would you do this i don't think she's intentionally trying to annoy me and block everybody from getting mm-hmm. around her but she's just right. not even thinking about anybody else and like i see this all the time when people stop like they're in a mall or something and they just stop in the middle of the path just move over next to the wall just get out of the way but it doesn't even occur to them that they might be in the way or that they should do something different. You know, I have a similar issue Mm. where I'm out somewhere Mm -hmm. and I'm walking on like a sidewalk or what have you. Sure. And people are walking in your direction. Yeah. And there's four of them across the way and they're blocking the whole thing. And they see you walking. Oh, no, that's what I'm talking about. And they don't. Oh, I thought you were walking. I thought you meant like as you walk. No, opposite up past direction. Them. No, like the the girl that I was trying to pass was walking the same direction as me. The core of the complaint is you're walking one direction. People are coming at you, and they take up the entire path. They just spread and take up the entire path, and they see you and they drive you off of the path rather than moving slightly behind each other or breaking into two rows. Yeah, it's astounding. Like I got, I was walking in the park a few weeks ago, and I, after the fact, I thought, you know what, I should have done. I should have just like put out an elbow and knocked him over but they essentially drove me into like some bushes off the side of the path in the park because they wanted to walk four wide it just it is beyond my comprehension why you would do this, this. To me just seems like a general lack of consideration for your fellow human man yeah is what it feels like i really don't think they're aware that that's what they're doing Come on, they see you, they know what the option is, walk through them, or walk into the bush. Yeah. That's just not being considerate. I, I agree. But I, I mean, I don't think we should ever underestimate how little people think about things. Like, mm. people are impressively oblivious a lot of the time. I mean, they can be, but that's just like a simple courtesy. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's that there are four of them and each of them thinks, oh, one of the other people will do it. And then just nobody does it. I mean, at that point, you should just take action. Be an example. This... Firstly, became firstly this this became an acute issue for me for the first time when I was in Asia, as I mentioned. Uh-huh. Partially because in Asia, and this was worst in China, people just don't have personal space. They don't really care about personal space. They're fine like mm. running into people and touching people and like having contact with other people. Like there, there's no issue with that. So while here, if you get close to people, generally they'll kind of keep at least, you know, nine inches away from you. Yeah. Like they're not going <laughs> to, they're not going to get close to you. Right. There, they're walking four wide and they'll just walk right into you. I think genuinely they just have no idea about the people around them or where they operate in the space and they don't think about it and it's not what's on their mind. And I don't know, it bothers me really like this should be the sort of thing that is just basic. But I, I think this whole thing, it doesn't happen enough in enough situations that people observe it and like adopt basic etiquette and some people are fine with it like there are plenty of people that are fine with it but so many people a shocking number of people to me take up the whole path i never will understand it you know that's funny it reminds me of the story you were in it (laughs) okay you i and a friend of ours were walking through a park okay i like it i like how this begins so i don't know if you remember this we're walking mind our own business and there's like a man behind us who is jogging or whatever Mm. like an elderly man and he's running up 
there must have been some like miscommunication on our part where we tried to move out of the way for the man. Okay. But we all kind of moved in opposite directions and ended up blocking the entire pathway for him. I don't remember this. Okay. And he got extremely upset about this. Okay. Okay. Like, I think he had passed by and he cursed at us. Nice. It's a classy move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's like gone and he comes back because I guess he had ran however far he needed to run and he starts running back in the direction towards us. Sure, as people will do. And this time we weren't blocking the path, but he still walked around us. And before he passed us, and maybe like a foot in front of us, he like spits to the ground. And our friend, he's a very proud person, Mm. was like freaking out. And he was really upset. And I thought he was going to go fight this old man (laughs) to like prove a point of respect. Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was just weird this thing blocking well but you know see that old man that old man's taken justice into his own hands he's trying to build this cultural standard of you don't block the path and that path is especially bad because like a bike path and a running path and that whole thing yeah yes but also maybe you shouldn't try to upset a bunch of young healthy men when you're on the verge of death (laughs) one of them might be like our friend who gets offended easily and will decide to assault you just gonna punch anyone (laughs) yeah it's true Yeah, I don't think 80-year-old men cursing and spitting at you. I don't think it's a wise move. I mean, I guess you're close to death anyway, but probably don't do that. (laughs) It's probably not a good call at all. Right. But, you know, talking about old people and how Uh old people work, I've been thinking about this other aspect of society. Is this a peeve of yours or just a observation (laughs) just an observation just an observation okay okay so old people so obviously i lived in asia for quite a while as i've talked about Mm -hmm. there they have substantial reverence for the elderly okay and the u.s and the west generally europe and all that i think used to have that like that used to be a thing respect your elders reverence for your grandparents and things like that like i think that used to Mm -hmm. be a very deep-seated part of our culture but it has gradually waned And I mean, I think perhaps it's waned because our individualism allows us to go separate ways much more than the collectivist cultures of Asia. But Uh it's an interesting facet of society that every society that I've ever heard of really revered the elderly of their society. Right. Recently, I've been reading a lot of history and, and doing some research for a project I'm working on about early agricultural civilizations. And one of the things that... I thought about was the fact that if you're looking several thousand years ago, when a lot of these traditional cultural mores probably began, or even if you're looking at 500 years ago. I'm sure we could even look like 150 years ago. Yeah, yeah, sure. You can look much more recently, but people's life expectancy was much lower. Mm -hmm. So the oldest people in a society could easily have been 40, maybe in their 50s. Right. You know, it makes a lot of sense if the oldest people in your society are 40, or in their 40s. And it makes a lot of sense to revere them. They would know the most. They would be big, strong, capable. And so it makes a lot of sense that you would respect them and that you would want to show deference to those people because they've managed to right. survive all this time and they're extremely capable and knowledgeable. Uh-huh. The 16-year-olds who are like crazy and irrational and all of that, like that, they're not at that level. But carrying that to modern society, the oldest people in our society... Right are not big, strong, robust, sharp-minded people. Right. I think that this is why respect for the elderly has degraded Mm -hmm. in the U.S. and across the Western world. Because when you meet people who are 90, you meet people that are in their 80s, and you're like, Mm -hmm. you have dementia, or you can't really walk. 
or someone has to wipe you. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that, that even more. Those sorts rough. of things, it, it's going to be really hard to revere and show deference to that person. Right, because they're basically just an old baby. Exactly. Like, if you have to make decisions for someone, you cannot be deferential to them by kind of definition. Mm. Right. The fact that our life expectancies have risen so much and mm-hmm. yet our condition at the end of life has degraded by comparison to how it used to be. Back when people died at 50, most people died of diseases and they mm. weren't degrading slowly. Nobody had dementia back when they were dying at 50, right. right? Like that's not a thing. Because even if you go as recently as World War II, life expectancy was around 65. Right. And most people dying in their early 60s are not going to be really physically incontinent in the way that the elderly are now. Right. Because mm-hmm. I'm not ne- necessarily sure that not revering the elderly is a bad thing, but mm-hmm. I think many people have this kind of sense that that's not a great thing, that right. we've kind of diminished somewhat because we don't have this respect. Everybody wants new things. Everybody wants to be young and fit and strong, and like this reverence mm-hmm. for the elderly has, has dwindled. But I think that really is probably the core cause of this whole phenomenon right i would be inclined to agree with that Hmm. i I mean sure you're like 60 and you're still mobile and Hmm. gotta skip in your step i could see you know you live longer you might know something i don't know i can respect that but i mean after a certain point but it is interesting because those people that might have filled that role previously the people who were 50 years old or maybe even 60 years old those people mm-hmm. don't get the same kind of respect and reverence for their experience that they probably would have 200 years ago from younger people. Younger people, I think because we've lost respect for the elderly, like the really old people, maybe, we've kind of lost respect for maybe, all old people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyone who's older than us. I think maybe it's more like a shift towards admiration for those who've accomplished great things. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, we look at like people like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and yeah. you know artists Beyonce I don't know <laughs> sure I mean people really love her they really do but, they you know, really really do so they look at people who are like really accomplished and are successful and are doing a lot and are innovating mm-hmm. I mean yeah. people don't talk well about Jeff Bezos but I imagine that there's people that admire his whole creation of Amazon I think lots of people admire Bezos yeah and so it's like Maybe it's not necessarily like lack of respect for elderly people or older people. It's just shifting that respect towards people that are now very publicized and easy to read about and learn about who are like accomplishing great things and doing great things. And then the more people learn about history, you know, they think about all these dead figures. They find out that they were accomplishing things when they were like 15 and 17 and Mm. 25 and 30. And it's like, I'm sure there are a lot of old people that have done a lot of great things late in their life but I think it's more like a focus on what people are accomplishing. Yeah, I think you're right. The focus shifts to, toward accomplishment, but there is a general devaluation of experience. Mm, experience only goes so far. I know, and that seems to be the widespread perception that experience only goes so far and that it's limited and it's not actually that valuable. But I think about people like my parents and their perspectives mm-hmm. on like what's going on in politics today and all of the chaos that is surrounding American politics. They have lived through so many more presidents. They've lived through so much more history. They Mm -hmm. have substantially more perspective. Like if you look at people who are 19 right now, 
this is the first presidency that they've lived through as adult people. This is probably the first one or maybe the end of Obama's time in office like that they right. have experienced. So they have no real concept of what is normal. They have no real concept of how things have always been. Like that experience really grounds people having lived through mm -hmm. history. Like I watched that movie on the Washington Post earlier this year or last year. Uh -huh. It was fascinating to me because I know that wasn't about Watergate, like Watergate came in at the end, but that whole saga was really big for everybody that lived through it. Everybody right. knew about it. But for us who didn't live through it, it's nothing. Like it was not a thing that we ever learned about. We don't know right. any of the details. Like some people will know details about Watergate, but not about the stuff that preceded it. Like everybody that has this negative perception of Nixon from the time in office and all of his scheming, like we maybe have heard mm -hmm. remnants of it, but we don't really have an understanding of it. That experience, that living through it, that really is a powerful thing. And I think we really have devalued it completely. There is something lost there. I suppose that's true. But I mean, what value would that provide us, that experience, that knowing, that being there? It gives you improved decision making, I think. I mean, obviously, that's an example that for your average person isn't going to be very actionable. But mm -hmm. if you see something like the financial crisis right. and you are old enough that you lived through the Depression, I mean, obviously, you'd have to be pretty old to live through the Depression. But right. that whole experience of everything from then till now will really inform how you think about this whole thing the possibility of the downsides. Like everyone that was talking about, oh, we shouldn't bail anybody out. Oh, it creates moral hazard and all of that. None of those people lived through any kind of major recession that lasted years and years and years. None of them dealt mm. with that. So they right. kind of have a maybe intellectual knowledge of it. Maybe they have a theoretical knowledge of how it went. But it's that visceral experiential knowledge that I think is really powerful. Like somebody who's suffered, somebody who's been in prison, somebody who's been in like a labor camp in a totalitarian regime. That experience... Right is valuably informative in their decision-making. Like, that's one of the reasons why I think right now you see democratic norms being torn down throughout the U.S., throughout Europe. You see a lot of people moving against globalization and all of that. And it's because uh -huh. so much of the population don't have the experience to understand what things were before and how they've changed. Okay. Even our perception, like you're in my perception of mm -hmm. how the world is, I don't think we necessarily have a good understanding of how different it was even before 1990 we were mm. both children of the 90s we grew right. up in the 90s that was after the fall of the berlin wall that was after the fall of the soviet union before that right. nobody could go from eastern europe to western europe china right. was closed off most of central asia was closed off mm. now i can't travel to north korea but back then you couldn't travel to tons of places you couldn't really be a communist in the u.s without suffering major persecution Right. People who grew up after that, they don't have a conception of how real and how scary that was. And it's because That's of that true. lack of experiential knowledge. Hmm. That's fair. But even then, I think that only really serves you if you experienced it. Cause it's, you can't really... I mean, you could talk about your own personal experiences, but you can never like share that with someone. And maybe understanding that they have experiences will give their opinion greater weight. But outside of that... I, I disagree with that. Because if you know someone who has experienced something and they talk you through that experience and the emotions attached to it and how visceral it was. Like you can feel empathy to them in a way that is very different from if you 
read a book about it, or if you watch a documentary that talks about the history of what have you. If you have somebody who was a victim of rape, describe to you the process, mm -hmm. describe to you how they felt, describe to you all of their suffering and emotional devastation after the fact. That's a very different experience than somebody right. explaining to you what rape is. That's fair. Yeah, no, that's fair. You got me there. This is the whole reason why that reverence for the elderly and reverence for experience, why it's such a loss that we've lost it completely, is because talking to older people and getting that experience and, and hearing, like my grandmother grew mm -hmm. up during the depression and hearing some of her descriptions, like her family moved out to California from Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl. Like they were completely uh -huh. devastated and having wow. her actually like talk you through it gives you a very different understanding of it. But people of our generation generally are not going to be talking to elderly people. They're generally not going to be getting that empathetic experiential transfer of knowledge like that intergenerational transfer of knowledge and experience is really powerful and we've kind of devalued it and stamped it out of society hmm. i see what you're saying i'm sure there's ways we can find that information i mean you're right people probably don't talk to elderly people as much but just your thing that sounds like an interesting project to take take elderly people and interview them about certain experiences they've had hmm share them with people yeah that's true everything's done online i'm sure there's ways to take that experience and show the value of it you know the people that are best with doing things online those 85 year olds sitting in the home down the street well obviously you'd have young people organize it i'm not saying have old people just go on youtube and record themselves talking about <laughs> their experiences that's why i said very specifically have someone interview them yeah yeah maybe someone who didn't experience it sure who has questions, yeah. John. <laughs> no, you're right. That That is a, a good call. Yeah. This connects to another, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but it connects to another kind of societal problem that I see within our society that living in Asia really brought to the forefront of my mind. Like a lot of people, I think, look at the dependency of the elderly in a lot of Asian countries, including South Korea, on mm -hmm. their children in old age as a real societal problem. Because there's a major right. issue in Korea that people don't have very many children. It's like if there are fewer children than there are parents, then essentially one child has to support two parents. Or if the child gets married, then those two children have to support four parents. And right. it becomes very difficult to do that sort of thing. And so I, I see that as a problem. But in the West, we have a different problem. And that is that different age groups really have been separated out. And I, I'm not sure, I, th I feel like we may have discussed this before, but it starts with school uh -huh. where okay. every grade level is divided out completely by age. Like I talked to my father about his primary or his elementary and middle school time and all of his elementary and middle school was in one school, uh -huh. one classroom. Right. Or I, I talked to my girlfriend's father here in Ireland and they uh -huh. had all of the grades for all of primary school all in one classroom. You know, they had two or three kids of each year. And nowadays, most schools are large enough that they divide them by year and you don't interact. Mm -hmm. My experience as a child, I never really interacted with any kid more than one year older than me or more than one year younger than me. Like there was like that little three year spectrum. And those were the only people right. that I knew. That is true. I also had that experience. Yeah. And I, I think that's extremely common. And so like if a band was popular four years before I became aware of it, I wasn't in an age group that would ever hear about that because I've been stratified, mm. right? 
And I think this continues right. on through college and it continues on after you graduate. You think so? Because I feel like as I went to college, I made friends that were as much as 10 years older than me. Mm. Some friends who are probably closer, like five years younger than me. I do know what you mean, though, because there are these things that they talk about that I just can't connect with. You're right. Some people do branch out and make friendships with people of different age groups, but I don't think it's very common. And when you zoom out to people actually settling down and having families, mm-hmm. 50 years ago, 70 years ago, you would have a family, and often in that house, you would have grandparents and parents and children. And maybe even like mm. cousins and other stuff. Like you still see that sometimes with Asian families or Hispanic families in the US. Certainly you see it throughout Asia. That's one of the problems that I just earlier described. But uh-huh. nowadays, those young children growing up in houses almost never have their grandparents around. Right. And when I was talking about that intergenerational transfer of knowledge, like that's what I'm talking about. Like grandparents being intimately involved in raising children will transfer that experience from 60 years ago into children and teens and that transfer of knowledge has completely gone away almost no teenagers Mm. ever see somebody who is over like 50 they never deal with them it's just not a thing that's probably true because grandparents now are in homes or they live in another city the family has spread out much more and it's disintegrated to a large extent as society gets more stratified in terms of age groups that will increasingly be a problem like you see things like retirement homes down close to Long Beach, or it's in Seal Beach, I think, right? The whole... Uh, oh, Leisure World. Leisure World, that's the one, yeah. The, the largest retirement a... facility in the world, I think. Oh, man, that's great. And it's kind of cool because it's these special-made homes for the elderly, yeah. and you're not going to hurt yourself. You can walk around and go down to this right. place where they have concerts. They probably have a really high turnover rate, so it's probably <laughs> easy to find a place. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what the life expectancy is like once you move in. <laughs> But it's really nice for the elderly in there because you can walk around and see a bunch of other people that you can relate to and hang out with them. You're mm-hmm. not isolated the way you might be in just like a normal suburban home where if right. you can't drive, you're really just trapped. But true, 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 true. the other side of that is that you're essentially hoovering off this giant portion of the population, this aged mm-hmm. group that has all of this experiential knowledge, and you're separating them off from anybody who might learn from them. And you're really Mm. putting them in a completely separate society. A hundred years ago, those people would have been living in houses and going to churches with everybody else of every other generation and talking and sharing all of their stories and all of that. Like, that's what would be happening. Now, they're in this community where they only see other elderly people. And slowly, gradually, that knowledge dies off. And it doesn't get transferred. And it doesn't get passed on. Mm. And I know I'm just kind of ranting and raving. Yeah. Like, I don't have any sort of solution necessarily. Interview them. Add them to like yeah, history lessons. Yeah. Boom. Personal experience might be fascinating. But in my experience, what elderly people want more than anything is social connection. That's probably very likely. I mean, old people are kind of like the pariahs of modern society. They are. They very like, much are. No one wants to be around them. Their skin is cold and leathery. <laughs> they're hard to understand. Uh, they get really close to you and they talk. You know, they like they're like right true. in your face. Their breaths always smell a little weird too. Not like bad, but different. Like I don't I don't know what an old diet consists of. There is a different breathy smell. That's true. Yeah, but you, you're absolutely right. People avoid them. If you think about the fact that they just really want a lot of social connection and they want something to do, something interesting and pleasant to do, 
And you also look at it and you say, well, a lot of parents really struggle to find time to spend with their kids and raise their kids and talk to their kids. There's that whole 30 million word project where a lot of kids growing up in poor families by the age of three have heard 30 million words less than children growing up in affluent families just because poorly educated people especially like single parents who are out of the house a lot they're just not around the child they're not talking as much and so it really debilitates the development of these children they're not able to learn as quickly because Mm -hmm. they didn't develop basic linguistic skills by just hearing a lot of language and communicating a lot of language well you put some elderly people with them elderly people will babble on about whatever they want to talk about transferring this experiential knowledge right right so i don't necessarily have an obvious solution to how you would structurally do this but giving elderly people an opportunity to participate in the educational process Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in a formalized role, but in kind of right. the role that churches once played, where there's this social mm-hmm. communal aspect. And when you're talking about early childhood development, preschools, things like that. So like a nonprofit? Maybe. Maybe even like in actual schools, in actual public schools. Mm-hmm. Think about like kindergarten, preschool, that time. And maybe you have a place right. that old people can go to congregate and you can take small children to go and congregate. And you like mm-hmm. have those two groups interacting with each other and spending time and building relationships. I think that that would perhaps make a lot of sense. Like if you had some children's grandparents, maybe they're not capable enough to take care of the kid, right. or maybe they don't want to just watch the kid, but like you take mm-hmm. them to a daycare kind of thing, and the grandparents can be there to like help watch over, so you don't need as many daycare people, but right. the grandparents don't have to be there all the time. Okay. I don't know. Like I don't have a solution, but I think increasing the interactions between people of different generations, I think, would be substantially to our benefit. To our benefit. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, yeah, because last time we talked about it, we had this whole discussion about it, where I think younger people seem to believe older people are out of touch, mm. and older people seem to think that younger people's values are garbage and that they need to. True change yes yeah and so i guess maybe discussion would probably not be a terrible call in that regard so i can see how that would work there's so much too even beyond that and i think this is one of the things that young people often don't appreciate like when i was talking about my grandma growing up in the depression just asking her about what were shops like because fast food didn't really exist convenience stores didn't exist in the way that they do how did you go down to shops like i remember i was watching a documentary here in ireland about grocery Mm -hmm. stores 50 years ago and they didn't have like prepackaged things you had to go up to the counter and tell them how much you wanted of flour and they would pour it out for you and tell them how much you wanted of peanuts and they would put it in a bag for you that's a completely different world that we wouldn't even understand but that's the kind of information that's just information you know what i mean there's no values there's no judgment it's just you know all of this stuff and i don't know any of it tell me these things Mm -hmm. but because it was such a different world and you don't necessarily know what questions to ask as a young person Right. You can't even conceive of what you might learn from them. But there really is a whole lot there that if you take a little bit of time to search it out, you could really open yourself up to a whole world of interesting information. Huh. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> okay. oh. Yeah, something to think about, something to chew on. Yeah. And it's hard. It's, right. it's hard for me. Like, it's hard for me to get myself. My grandmother has lived in Fresno, you know, four hour drive of where I grew up for a long long Mm -hmm. time and i you know i struggled myself to get myself to go up there and spend time and like try to execute this transfer and try to execute this learning you know what i mean and and just spend that time it's a really hard thing to get yourself to put away the focus on everything that's going on in your life and focus on that sort of thing but it can be valuable sorry i did not mean to get so uh (laughs) like preachy 
Yeah, it's okay. Thanks. People need to be passionate about talking to oldies. <laughs> As, as we call them i mean seniors no oldies i think that's what we're sticking with <laughs> okay oh yeah <laughs> all of these sorts of things to do with thinking about because you know like it's it is a strange phenomenon the fact that we don't respect the elderly anymore i'm not saying that mm-hmm. it's wrong that we don't i think your original point is probably a lot closer to why we don't because i think if there were a space where young people and older people were able to communicate you'd probably have younger people that wouldn't be so hesitant to speak to older people because why would they think that their information is useless i mean they at the very least experience things that those people haven't yet mm. worst case scenario they've experienced things they'll never have to yeah but it's still kind of good to know those kind of things but there is a feeling i think when you're young that old people just don't know anything and they don't understand like i don't know where that comes from but i think a lot of teenagers have this feeling about their parents that like oh they never went through any of this stuff that's true you know what? I also think that there's older people, and this is after a certain age, but I also think adults are like, what do you know? You're just the child. That's true, but that's not inaccurate. I guess. I mean, I'm sure there's 16-year-olds who've experienced a lot of hardship and tell them they don't know anything. Sure, sure. Probably unfair. No, okay, sure. And obviously, I don't mean to say every 16-year-old has ever experienced hardships. I'm sure there's some who've lived grand and beautiful lives, but you know, people still have experiences. It's weird to devalue anyone despite their lack of experience. Mm, I don't disagree with that. I think it's it's kind of on both sides. But you are right. Teenagers are definitely like that. I think this ties in a little bit with our lack of respect for history and our lack of interest in history. Understanding the context of how we got to where we are today, I obviously think, I know you do too, is a really valuable thing. Understanding why the world exists as it exists. Mm. That is what history does, right? It allows right. you to understand why the world is the way it is. I don't think people really appreciate that as much as they might, mm-hmm. especially younger people. The younger you are, the less you are likely to appreciate history. That fact means that what my parents knew about stuff in the 70s, oh, that doesn't matter. The 70s don't matter. The stuff mm-hmm. that happened in the 70s doesn't matter. That doesn't affect anything today. You guys didn't even have the internet. What are you talking right. about? Right. <laughs> you know, like... Even the fact that like they didn't have the internet, I've found myself in so many conversations with older people trying to figure out, wait, how did this work before the internet? Because it doesn't right. seem like it's possible to me to do these things without the internet. I don't understand how it worked. And that's true. It's funny because I think we largely grew up in a time where despite technology emerging, we didn't have mm. the same technology even as kids now. No, not even close. The mobile revolution yeah, has been huge yeah, for children. Despite how convenient things were for us growing up, going to school and going to college, I think they're at least like 10 times more convenient now, if not more. Yeah. That's true. I would imagine that people would be curious about that, right? How was life before smartphones? One would think, but I don't think there are many people that actually are. At least there aren't that many people that are curious enough to actually pursue a conversation about it. Hmm. I mean, I think this just goes to remind all of us that there's just a lot that we don't know and a lot that we could know and that would be valuable to explore if we took the opportunity. Very true, very true. And you know, those sorts of conversations that you could have with your parents could allow you to avoid conversations about politics where you guys can yell at each other about your hatred of Trump or your hatred of Hillary. Mm. So there you go. Just talk about the pre-internet financial system or (laughs) pre-internet... Anything. letters yeah anything really 
and that'll give you hours and hours of non-political conversation there you go john and i we do this podcast john likes to make videos we didn't know i do we were actually having this discussion right before the podcast this is the way i interpreted it anyways what's the most important part of doing something Hmm. and the way john split it up because you know i get long-winded and he's much more concise than i am <laughs> i don't think i don't think anybody that's listened to our show would describe me as concise right but go ahead yeah continue yeah. I'll, I'll take it Jeez, you make one joke and he's not in it <laughs> so in making something what's the most important thing the idea the execution or the process yeah so john for you when you're doing this what to you is so far in your experience anyways the most important of those concepts yeah the different components of creation see he's thought about this way more than i have (laughs) i mean you know it's something that i dwell on a lot what are the core components of creating something and which of them matters the most it's true that the ideas involved in the creation the execution Mm -hmm. actually doing it or the process like if it's a repeated task if we're making a podcast like this this is Mm -hmm. repeated we do one every week So there is a process involved. If you're trying to improve things, obviously you won't want to improve every aspect of it, but should you put more focus on the process, making sure that the process is consistent, evaluating your execution and refining your execution of it and improving your execution, or is Mm -hmm. the idea and the actual like core content the most important thing? And I, I don't have an answer for that, but I think really they're all important and they all interact in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And honestly, you know, here's here's what I'm going to say. The idea and I guess the topic or the the content that you're creating, whether you're talking about a painting or whether you're talking about a video or you're talking about music, the content I don't think really matters or it doesn't matter nearly as much as the execution and the process. I think those mm, are okay. really much more important. You know, what? I'm going to agree with you. As someone who likes to write. I'm sure I've mentioned that maybe once throughout this podcast. It's come up. No matter how good an idea is, if it is executed poorly, no one's going to care. It's true. It's just the fact of the matter. If it sucks, it sucks. It doesn't matter how great your idea is. Yeah. This is something that I come across constantly as I study entrepreneurship and startups and how effective businesses are. Without execution, ideas are pointless. Everyone has ideas. I remember I was watching a lecture at one point and the lecturer rightly pointed out the fact that everybody in the classroom probably had ideas and they were probably all good ideas. They were probably good ideas for businesses and none of those businesses were going to happen because none of us put in the effort and none of us executed. And that's the key. The execution is necessary. If you have great execution, like if you write a great song, Mm -hmm. it can be about nothing. You see (laughs) incredibly popular songs about nothing. Mm -hmm. It's because they were well executed. Very true. It's hard to deny. So obviously we can agree that the most important part is the execution, mm. I guess. Right? Yeah. If it's done well, people will like it. But I mean, that execution is all in the process, right? That would make the execution good if you have a good process. Well, see, what the process, I think, does is when you're thinking about the process, you're thinking about consistency. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So I think sports is always a way to simplify these things. And Okay. Everybody, everybody close your eyes. Close your eyes. <laughs> If you're thinking about executing, let's talk about basketball. You have to shoot a three-point shot. The Mm -hmm. actual execution is to shoot the shot. 
Right, well, to make it. <laughs> sure, but like you can execute poorly and then you don't make it. But the action is the execution, I guess, is what I'm saying. Okay, I see. I see what you're getting. Or if you draw up a play, a play is probably a better that's concept. A, that's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you draw up a play. You're supposed to Keep your eyes have closed. a screen and then somebody goes around the screen and shoots a jumper. Mm-hmm. The idea, sure, is of some importance. The execution is really important. But right. the process is that next layer, that meta layer, to where this guy practiced this jump shot from this spot on the mm-hmm. floor. How many times did he practice it? Did he practice it 10,000 times or did he practice it 10 times? If he practices it 10,000 times, he's probably going to do better. And that's because his process is dramatically different. Or even like, do you have set structures in terms of for the huddle when you're making the play, how that goes, who talks, who draws it out, Mm -hmm. who fills certain roles. And this is where I think the process is harder to understand. And it's difficult because it's, it's so much easier to gauge the execution right to judge the execution but you're right the process really does over the long run determine how good your execution on anything is it's funny i see this with and it's not necessarily the process i know we were talking earlier about looking at the completed work and picking apart yeah what you did to see where you could be better where you could be worse and it's evaluating your execution mm-hmm. and i see this a lot with television shows or plays mm. Well, you'll see somebody make, and I'm thinking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Because the creator of the television series for that made a movie, and the movie was really campy, and it was kind of silly, but it was basically the exact same concept executed widely different, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he writes this movie, creates a movie, makes a movie, right? Really silly and isn't that great. Gotcha. But, I mean, he's able to watch this movie that he made, see where he went wrong, and then create a show that was pretty popular while it was around super popular i think yeah and considerably better than the movie that he made and i mean maybe it's because the concept itself worked better as a television show or maybe it's just because he changed so many things about the way it was done Mm. that changed how it was viewed how people took to it well yeah absolutely he obviously changed how he executed but it's exactly what you were just describing him looking at his movie and evaluating what wasn't good was him evaluating his execution but that is part of this improvement process i read Uh about south park and how south park is made and how basically every episode of south park the idea and the writing and the animation and the voice work and everything is done within a seven day span oh yes yes every episode they put together completely from scratch in seven days it's the only thing like that but that is a process that they put in place And that Mm -hmm. shapes everything about the show. And that's the kind of thing that I don't think people give enough credence to. That is so core to everything that they do. And what you were talking about with Mm -hmm. the Vampire Slayer, the show would have never been any good. Even if he had executed it just as he planned, if he couldn't refine and improve his plan and figure out how to improve what they were doing with the show. Like, it's the same kind of thing if you look at how Seinfeld was developed and how each of those episodes went through. That process, the structures you put in place around things Mm -hmm. is so core and so key, but it's also kind of hard to evaluate. For instance, with that Vampire Slayer situation. Buffy, yeah. (laughs) Sure, with Buffy. He saw that his movie wasn't very good and he wanted to make Mm -hmm. it better like i don't know if he had any sort of set process for how to do that but if he did it would have been really hard to see until after 
a long period of time whether or not that process was an effective process. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to tell if your execution was effective than it is to tell if your process is effective. Because the whole point of a process is that it takes a while to show results. Mm -hmm. That's true. To go back to sports, to go back to basketball, Philadelphia 76ers supposedly have been following this quote-unquote process for the last five years where they were really, really bad every year so Mm -hmm. they could get really good draft picks and then slowly develop those talents of those good players. And they did this for multiple years so they could get really good teams. And this year, for the first time in forever, they've built it to be a good team and it should hopefully improve into the future. Their whole thing, their mantra was trust the process. We're going to be really bad for years, but you trust the process and eventually we'll be good. But the problem is if the process is bad and you trust the process... You never get good. (laughs) You just are terrible forever. (laughs) And so that's why, even though the process is so important, it's extremely difficult to suss out how to build a process or to replicate other people's processes. It's really hard to figure that out, and it takes a long time to really flush that out properly. Mm, That's true. It also makes me think of plays like musicals. Mm. As you know, John, I dated someone whose sister was very, very... (laughs) very fond of musicals yeah yeah i do remember Mm -hmm. that and so i was around musicals a lot and one of the things i got to experience which i didn't really think about until right now as as we're discussing this is that there was songs and i don't know where she found them but she'd find songs that had totally different lyrics and the lyrics that you know are in the musical now Mm. or a song that's similar but vastly different yeah and you see that they have these elements and you hear that it, it doesn't sound quite as good as the final product okay or the lyrics for example one of the songs i guess like the actor has to wear prosthetic makeup yeah and so the lyrics just didn't work because it made it hard for that person to pronounce words sure sure i'm assuming you're talking about phantom of the opera yes okay that's a fair assumption to make and so throughout the process they're learning what isn't working and what does work and then you know they're taking songs and they're changing songs to better fit the theme of the musical and it's kind of cool to listen to these unreleased songs or original versions Mm. or whatever they're called and sort of see what they probably wanted it to be originally or the concept they had for it yeah and sort of during the process change it up and change it up and and sort of see the improvements and hear the improvements yeah if you want to produce something good this is what you have to look at because you have to see how do you make this thing because it's very easy to look at the final product of phantom of the opera or any other creative thing that's ever been produced and say well this is good this could be better this is good this could be better that is easy Mm -hmm. to do but how would you get it to be better that is the question and that is the thing that's so difficult and with so many things especially huge projects like phantom of the opera or like a movie that you maybe put years and years into it's really hard to refine that process because Mm -hmm. you don't have enough iterations to be able to do it or even think about it from a company standpoint think about it from a car company or a technology company. Think about it like with the iPhone. Mm-hmm. They've now made nine, ten versions of the iPhone. Right. They've had ten chances to refine their process of improving this iPhone. That's not very many chances. Mm-hmm. If you compare right. that to something like Google and Gmail, they've changed and tweaked, and especially Google's search engine, they've changed and right. tweaked the search engine hundreds of thousands of times since it came out because they can do that every day, all the time, testing new things constantly. And that allows them to refine their process of, oh, if we do things this way, it improves things. It allows them to optimize it much more rapidly. When you have this slower cycle 
like you have with huge projects like musicals, it becomes very difficult mm-hmm. to judge is the process effective or could it really be improved in another way? This is one of the reasons I know this is a bit of a side thing, but this is one of the reasons why Mm -hmm. wars are such random occurrences. The victors of wars are so hard to predict. It's because these are huge events that are one-time things. They really, really matter, but they happen so infrequently Mm -hmm. and each of them is so different that it's really hard to define a process to be consistently successful. That's extremely difficult because they don't happen enough. They just don't right. happen enough to do that successfully. I really like that you're using that as an example. Okay. We should just take that and talk about that. <laughs> like look at a war and be like, hmm, how did the idea execution process help them win or cause them to lose? Yeah. And there are great examples of this. For instance, during the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon went to conquer Portugal, mm-hmm. right? He convinced the king of Spain, who's I think his niece or his sister... I think his sister was the queen of Portugal, but like he convinced okay. the king of Spain to still go to war with Portugal. And the whole thing was they were going to split Portugal. Spain would get half, France would get half, right? Uh-huh. And Napoleon was smart enough that he knew, oh, I can march my troops through Spain because now I'm this quasi-ally of Spain. I can take Portugal right. and then I can just use my troops that are now in Spain to take Spain. And so he, right. had, like, he had these brilliant ideas and he tried to execute, but he couldn't execute it effectively because... It was just much more difficult to hold down Spain than he thought it would be. They resisted him much stronger than he thought they would. But like, there would have been no way to predict that. There would have been no way to prepare for that. There would have been no way to have a different process. Because that sort of thing where you ally with someone to divide another country before betraying your ally, that sort of thing doesn't happen enough, even within war. Like That's a very uncommon kind of war. There's no way to have any sort of consistent process to make Uh that a successful endeavor. Like It's just, it's, it's beyond possible. But to take this back to the original question, and uh, this is what I want to pose to you. After we've talked about all of this and we've talked about the importance and the different aspects of all these parts of the creative process. Yes. Because process is so difficult to evaluate and because ideas fail so miserably without good execution and good process, what should you really be focused on if you're trying to make Uh, creative things? Can I cop out? Can I give you a cop out okay. answer? Okay, yeah, sure. It all depends. <laughs> nice one. Very nicely done. It all depends on uh, a thing with another thing. Cop out, cop out, cop out, cop out. No, but seriously, I think it really depends on what it is that you're trying to do. All right. You know, like with the show, the process is very important. Mm. You need the process to have the success. Yeah, sure, because you need that consistency. Right. With other things, like for us, we spend a lot of time listening to the episodes to see where we could be improving yeah what we can change what we should keep that's where the execution is really important yeah okay sure sure but what i mean is that the process of creating what you're creating mm. versus what you're looking at once you've created it because some people it's important for them to have the right steps they're taking the right steps yeah and every time the product will be the same mm. and that's the product that they want and we kind of mess around a little bit with the process by looking at the end product. Yeah, but I guess what I'm really asking is, if you're doing something and you mm-hmm. want to make it better, should you focus on trying to optimize the process of making it better? Or should you focus on actually optimizing the product that you're producing? Right? Like, So should you work on and focus on what you make or how you make it? For me, it'd be how you make it, okay. I think. Okay. Ultimately, I think that's where I would fall to because how you make it is ultimately 
going to dictate what you make. Yeah, it's it's true. And it, I mean, it probably depends on which you have more of a deficit with to begin with. Because mm-hmm. obviously, a lot of people that start a certain creative effort have no process uh-huh. at all to begin with. Or if you start a company, you have no process to begin with. You have to build your process over time. That's true. So if you're starting out, you have ideas about what you want to create. Maybe you know how to do it, so you executed it, but you don't have any structures mm-hmm. in place. And so that's obviously where you need to focus on building because you don't have any structures. Like if you're at the point where you don't mm-hmm. even know how to make what you want to make to begin with, like if you're trying to make an animated video and you don't know how to animate, like I <laughs> didn't a few months right. ago. <laughs> yes. Don't even worry about the process. Like you need to just figure out how to do it to begin with, how to make the actual right. thing. Yeah. The process will show itself as you learn to make the things that you don't know how to do. Right. Like, right? like yeah, that'll develop over time. Yeah. So you're absolutely right, like with your wonderful cop-out. It, this does depend somewhat on where you are today. Uh-huh. But the reason why I've been thinking about this so much of late is because with the videos that I'm trying to make, uh-huh. I know there's a lot of ground to be made up. Like I can improve them dramatically, which I should be able to improve them dramatically because I'm not that good at them yet. It's early right. days. But I'm essentially faced with a choice. Like, do I try to standardize the sequence of events and how much time I put into the sequence of events in making a video? Or do I try to just focus on being more fluid with that sort of thing, less rigid, and Mm -hmm. focus just on the qualities that I want to try to get out of a video at the end and focus on trying to improve the actual execution of the video? So, like, if you're thinking about, for instance, writing a script... All of these videos mm. have scripts. Right. And so just thinking about it in terms of, do I just want to focus on how good is the final product of the script and how do I improve that final product? Or do I w- really want to focus on like, okay, I write one day, I edit the next day, I write the next day, I edit the next day. Mm-hmm. Do I want to focus on how much time I spend on each of those and like how that's set up and tinkering with that? Or do I just want to ignore that, do whatever feels natural and just focus on what the results need to be. And I don't know. I'm feeling that around. Because like I immediately ran into problems with this for my, my first two videos because the second right. video, I didn't start writing at all until the first video was out. And so obviously that's going to create delays with the second one. Mm-hmm. Right? And and so here's here I guess here's my personal issue with this whole thing. Okay. Writing is not the easiest thing in the world. No, it's not. As I think most people have come to understand if they've ever written anything it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of focus if let's say you have a video and you want to write a script Mm -hmm. for it maybe you need to spend 10 hours writing in total writing and editing you need to spend 10 hours just like with the learning that we've talked about you can't do that all in one day that's not going to be possible no that'd be serious pain in the butt i mean it wouldn't be good it would be terrible (laughs) like it it, you would greatly diminish your product by doing that so Sorry, I I need to explain this more clearly. Like, let's look at an entire video and say it takes 20 hours to make a video and you need to spend 10 hours writing, 10 hours animating and what have you, right? If it takes you 20 hours, you can't do that all in one day. So you have to not only think about like how much time does it take, but like how many days do you need? Because you only have a certain amount of focus, a certain amount of energy on each of the days that you work on it. And so if you're saying, well, it's going to take you 20 hours, but you can only spend two hours a day on it then should you be working Mm -hmm. on two different videos at the same time and try to be like, okay, I can work on the animation for this one while I'm writing the other one. 
and like stagger it. You know what I mean? Like this, this is what I'm talking about. Like that's, that's all process and that's all meta thinking. That's not even thinking about at all. Like what you're making, that's just thinking about how you're putting it together and Mm -hmm. how worthwhile is it spending a lot of time trying to figure that out versus just trying to make a better thing. I think that's something that a lot of people learn once they start making things. Yeah, sure. You know, like the idea, in theory, say it were easier to stagger things, animate for one episode, write for the other, or edit for one episode, Mm. record for the other, whatever it is you're doing. Like maybe that would work for you, or maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it would be easier for you to spend a four-hour block writing for one episode and then writing for the other, and then the next day doing the same thing for the editing and the animating, right. et cetera, et cetera. I think it's one of those things that you would have to learn as you go. Yeah, yeah. That's where you would talk to one of the oldies and ask them. Yeah, talk to one of those people experience. with all their 60 years uh-huh. experience animating videos. Yeah. I think that's one of those things that would be best learned through experience. You're right. I think it is best learned through experience. And and I think there is a kernel that I, I've kind of stumbled across as we've been talking about this. Uh-huh. We talked about South Park. We talked about Seinfeld. We talked about like the process that they use. Yeah, he doesn't mention Buffy or the Phantom of the Opera, but stuff he talked. You're right. About. Obviously, yes, we did talk about <laughs> Buffy and we did talk about Phantom, <laughs> but those things aren't. I guess Buffy is repeated every week or however often they make the shows. Yeah. I just don't know anything about Buffy. Yeah, well, there you go. But I guarantee you that those producers of those shows did not come up with it all out of thin air. Maybe they had prior experience. No. But I think really what you said about getting that knowledge from the oldies is so useful because there are people that are working on all of these things. There are people that have done mm-hmm. all of these things. And this is where like the ability to transfer that sort of knowledge, like this is the kind of knowledge that you cannot learn yourself. And it's a really important right. thing to think about. Most skills you can gain by just practicing them. Like animation. I uh-huh. can learn how to animate or drawing. I can learn how to draw just by Mm -hmm. practicing that in a consistent way. Learning this sort of process thing, you don't have enough opportunities to refine it, to really learn it all yourself. So getting a good starting spot by copying what somebody else has done and say like, oh, this is the process you use. Okay, let me take that and try to adapt it to my situation. That I think Uh is a really good starting point. So it's useful if you're trying to do something creative to have someone that you can, uh, you know, talk to about that and get yeah. that sort of insight. And, and maybe I should go reach out to some people. John, behind all my humor yeah. is a thinly veiled kernel of wisdom <laughs> waiting for you to extract it. Maybe thickly so veiled, just, you know, maybe like deeply buried, yeah. No, very thinly, very thin. <laughs> it's very obvious. You just have to listen. Okay, sure. The listeners understand. Mm, Hmm. They listen better than I do. I'm I'm more of a talker. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You are definitely more of a talker. So I don't know if we've settled anything with this, but it's something that I will continue to toy with. How about we just randomly vote on what we think is the most important, even though we probably don't mean it. Okay. John, what's your conclusion? I think process makes everything. Like in my okay. experience, like when when I was studying Spanish, the whole thing uh-huh. was just around find an effective process and use it until the end of time. Right. I second your vote. The eyes have it. But let me just say, despite the fact that process is the thing that really matters at the end of the day, it doesn't mean that that's where you should focus your energy because it doesn't mean that that's an easy thing to improve. That might be the most important thing in the world, but if you can't effectively improve it, 
then it makes no sense to spend any time focusing on it. And so the fact that we've decided that's the most important thing doesn't actually solve my problem of figuring out where should I spend my time and energy to focus on improving what I'm doing. Well, I think as long as you find a process, and since you know this is something you want to do that's repetitive mm. with regards to your videos, yeah, we're already doing this weekly. Yes. We got to just look at the end product and see where we're failing and see where in the process we can improve. Yeah, see what part's breaking down, what mm -hmm. part's holding it up. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I have so much experience with this. That's where I make all my money, you know, creative stuff. Yeah, you're, a, you're really a guru, I think, is the word yeah, that people most often use. Yeah, that's true. People come, they pay money to see my seminars. I would really enjoy seeing you in front of 2,000 people giving a motivational seminar about optimizing your process in creative tasks. Oh, my God. It would be so bad. <laughs> Do you guys work every day? No, you should try that. Thank you. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Do more stuff. Yes. Try harder. Who puts eight hours a day? Oh, you shouldn't be paying for my seminar. Give this man a refund. He can leave. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else, put in eight hours. <laughs> Have a good night, folks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, John has... Something he wants to inform us about. Drop that knowledge, boy. There is a question that looms large in the world today. And it is, why are there no European technology companies? Because they're not America. No, I'm just kidding. Come on. Come on. No, that's, that's a legitimate answer. That's an answer that I think most people ascribe to. Most people that especially don't pay that close of attention. And to be clear, you do have a few. You have Nokia, which was pretty massive. You have Spotify, which is pretty massive. And that's pretty much it. This is something that I think puzzles a lot of people because Europe, like the USA and like Canada, mm -hmm. has a large educated workforce. They have advanced technologies. They have right. a lot of research and development. So why is it that they have so consistently underperformed in terms of technology. Now, your initial answer, they aren't America, is not as silly an answer as one might think. Told you, John. Thinly veiled. <laughs> with most things, with most industries, they start in a particular place, and they grow mm. in that place long before they move anywhere else, and they stay very much clustered. And then eventually they disseminate and spread throughout the world. So you see this mm -hmm. in the UK with textile manufacturing hundreds of years ago. And you see this with the chemicals industry in the UK before it spread to Germany and the US and around the world. You see this with mm -hmm. electricity and the light bulb and stuff in the US before it spread. Like you, you see this sort of thing happen very regularly. But that would be a more satisfying answer if Japan did not exist. And if China did not exist. Okay. So back in the 90s and in the 2000s, companies like Nintendo and companies like Sony and companies like Kodak, all of these companies right. existed. And they're not uh -huh. all American and they're all huge, hugely successful technology companies. Up until the early 2000s, well, really up until the last 10 years, Japan and the US controlled all technology titans. And the only ones that have really stood out and succeeded all the way up through this entire period 
are American, right? So you have IBM, you have Microsoft, you have Apple, uh-huh. you have Google. Like they're all Americans. All of the really top tier titans are not Japanese. Uh-huh. They're all American. Okay. But you see more recently. We have a contender rising. A lot of companies in China that are rising up and being at least as dominant in their local market as U.S. companies right. are around the world. It mm. remains to be seen if those will effectively spread beyond China. But even without spreading beyond China, they have grown to be absolutely enormous. Right. And so the question is, if Japan can do it, and if China can do it, and if the U.S. can do it, it's obviously not just the U.S. So mm-hmm. why does it seem like every other developed economy can manage to create new technology firms, but Europe cannot. What do you got, hmm. Mike? You got any ideas? What do I have? I would assume that maybe their focus is on other things. Yeah, I guess that's reasonable. I mean, I don't know what exactly. I'm not as learned as you are, John. <laughs> and I don't care much about technology, which I should, because you drop interesting stuff every now and then, and I'm like, oh, I should read about that. Technology is what makes the world the go future. round. And the present and the past. Okay, so I guess technology is always... (laughs) It is everything. So essentially, here's my premise that I'm working under. Can I ask you a question really quickly? Yes, of course. Because you talk about Europe having a lot of R&D. Yeah. But what's it based around? Well, when I'm talking about R&D, I'm talking much more about fundamental research. Mm. So obviously, there is actual product development going on. But product development doesn't really create new technologies, generally speaking. Like there are exceptions, like the iPhone didn't really have any unique fundamental technologies, but through their product design and product development created something that fit this new paradigm better than anybody had before. But that fundamental technology, that fundamental research is the kind of thing that allowed for microprocessors to exist, right? It's the, and, and you see that sort of thing in Europe. You have things like CERN Laboratory, where the internet essentially started, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least, not the internet, sorry. The World Wide Web started in uh, this physics laboratory. And you mm-hmm. see a lot of research, a lot of university research in terms of physics. There's tons of nuclear research, building nuclear reactors in France and various other places, Mm -hmm. both fission and fusion. So that's the kind of fundamental research that I'm talking about. And you see even things like the World Wide Web, which started in Europe, and the internet, which France had a kind of precursor to, which could Uh have been as dominant as the internet or could have emerged in a similar way, but they just didn't catch on in the same way. And Mm -hmm. my fundamental thinking about this is just that it's impossible or maybe not impossible but it's extremely difficult for you to have really large dominant companies in small markets okay so the u.s since world war one really has been Mm -hmm. the largest market in the world by a lot and so when a company starts there and it's successful and it has this new technology it can grow rapidly and take over the whole market and be hugely profitable and hugely invest in future advances. And you get this kind of spiral effect where you can compound your growth by reinvesting from this huge market. And it's really hard Mm -hmm. for small markets to compete with this. And you see this over and over again where back when the UK was the largest market, they pioneered most new technologies like you look at the steam engine you look at the railway you look at 
textile manufacturing and the factory and all of that. They were the largest market. They were the wealthiest market. So they pioneered everything. When the Mm -hmm. U.S. eventually passed them, you started to see, oh, the U.S. starts out all of the technologies in the world. The light bulb, electricity. You see now with hydraulic fracturing for oil. You see stuff with GMOs. You see stuff with the Mm -hmm. internet and microprocessors and just everything. Software. Right. So before the early 2000s, Japan was the second biggest economy. And this is my Mm -hmm. thinking about why Japan kind of clung on with so many pretty successful technology companies. Because Uh being the second largest market, being the second largest economy, they had the scale or they had the potential to have the scale that allowed for large companies to flourish there. And China, the reason why they're being successful today is because they are the only other market other than the United States that has the size and has the girth to allow for this to work. Okay. Now that makes sense. I think there that, that I think is a reasonable explanation. There are other explanations, right. but I think that's a very reasonable one. Mm-hmm. Yes. But the question is why is that the case? Why is it so difficult for new huge companies to flourish in small markets or in small economies? And this is a much stickier question because it's a little bit too complicated and I don't have Mm. necessarily a good answer, but there's a lot to do with when you're talking about standards and like standard parts and suppliers and things like that. It's much easier to develop that if you have scale. So it's much harder to Uh do that if you have a tiny country because you can't Uh, develop an entire supply chain within the country. There's a whole lot of stuff about it's really hard to expand. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. because if you look at the European Union, and we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. European tech firms. Theoretically, right. they're all the same economy. They're all the same market. Right. They have the single market, as they call it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't seem to help at all. And what this comes down to, really, is that as much as Europe has a single market, they don't have a fully integrated market. They still have, okay. obviously, different languages. They still have a lot of different regulations and especially for services and things like that. And Mm -hmm. it's much harder for a firm in Denmark to expand into Spain than it is for a firm in California to expand into Oregon. Right. Because you essentially don't have to do anything if you're in the same country. Even if you're in the same market and you can move to Spain easily, you got to deal with a different language, you got to deal with different weather, you got to deal with different tastes and different culture. And there's, right. there's so much more that is so much more complicated. And like, think about Google for a second. Okay. Once Google was created and was super effective and the best thing, it immediately mm-hmm. dominated America. Everyone in the US pretty much used Google from the start once it was there because right. it was so much better than everybody else. Now imagine mm-hmm. that Google, instead of being started in the U.S., started in Ireland. Okay. And Ireland. they're the best, and they dominated Ireland from the start. And because they're so good, Damn. they also dominated the U.K. Bam, there you go. That's two countries. But because they were all English speakers, they didn't make a French version or a German version or a Spanish version or an Italian version. So before they could effectively expand to all of these other countries throughout Europe, they had competitors rise up. Mm-hmm. then they were challenged and they were not successful. Now this doesn't really work fully because obviously if it started in Ireland it could have taken over the US market. It could have, you know, expanded everywhere else. Right. So so you know that that's a questionable answer, but I think that that kind of gets at the key that like there are all of these kind of not invisible but just hard to quantify 
barriers to expanding throughout right. Europe. And mm -hmm. it's a tough thing to overcome. And I don't think that Europe will have any new dominant large firms as long as, well, really just because of this, like this, this is going to prevent them from ever, even with the European Union, even with full integration of their economies, like this will be a continued problem. Hmm. And you think that barriers like that would have an impact on companies that just create like microchips and things that maybe aren't necessarily something normal consumers would purchase, but that other larger companies would because it makes their products better. Yeah, I do. Because what matters, again, is kind of the supply chains, right? And this gets a little bit deeper into economics and it's a little bit more complicated. But like once the industry is mature, it can go across borders pretty easily because you're right, like large suppliers and large purchasers, they don't have any issue trading. But it's much harder for people to operate across borders early on in an industry. And you see stuff like how Texas Instruments, which essentially made the first thing with microchips, mm -hmm. started out doing that stuff in Texas when Intel made their first fully integrated microprocessor. The right. fact that they were in the same country allowed Texas Instruments to do that. If Texas Instruments was located in Portugal, they wouldn't probably have been able to do that. There's a whole lot in terms of information that would have limited them. Obviously, mm -hmm. the Portuguese news wouldn't be picking up stuff about Intel as much because it's an English-speaking company in an English-speaking country. Mm -hmm. So when new technologies arise, all of the related firms that allow for this technology to flourish and grow and accelerate down the path of progress mm -hmm. generally are going to form in the same market. And okay. the greater potential for that market to fully meet all of those needs the greater potential for that to accelerate and be successful like what i was talking about with the world wide web being started in cern mm -hmm. none of that really helped anything in switzerland or france or germany because they didn't have any of the other i guess technological infrastructure they didn't have any of the other uh, internet expertise to okay use this little component the world wide web which was so essential in terms of setting up the internet, mm. they didn't have the stuff in place to use that in a European context. So it got adopted, but it just got brought into the rest of the American technological landscape. Ah, You see, like with the development of mobile payments and a lot of the internet mobile commerce apps in China, like you're talking about Baidu, you're talking about Alibaba, all of those have this huge amount of infrastructure around them technologically. And mm. you're talking about suppliers, you're talking about customers, you're talking about customers transferring knowledge of these products to other customers. That all happens within China much more easily than it would happen if they had to try to get it into Vietnam and get it into Japan and get it into all of these other countries. And right. once it develops within one country and it becomes dominant and it becomes really, really good, it's much easier to unleash it into other countries. And to expand because okay. now these companies have resources, now these companies have scale, now these companies are able to compete in a robust way. New technologies can never do that really. Okay, I see what you mean. But the real the real question with this, even though we started with why there are no European tech companies, is as we see this and as we see the potential for China to pass the US in terms of economic size in coming right. years. What does that mean for the future of these firms? And what does that mean for the future of technology and for the future of capitalism and companies and all of that? Because a lot of the firms in China are direct competitors to firms in the US. 
Okay. Like you see Alibaba and you see Amazon. They're essentially, I mean, they are different, but they are very similar in a lot of ways. You see、mm-hmm. Baidu, which is essentially just Google in China. Uh huh. Now they've been able to survive without any sort of competition because companies like Google don't operate in China. Okay. And Amazon doesn't really compete in the same way with Alibaba in China. But if eventually these Chinese firms start trying to expand overseas in a significant way, it's very questionable who will come out on top. I think Google is probably much better than Baidu, but、right. it's really hard to know if there's actually an open competition between Google and Baidu. Like you see all of the controversy going on around Facebook. If that sort of、uh-huh. thing were to happen to Google, it could cause Google to lose a step and a. Big competitor in another big market like Baidu could suddenly swamp the whole market and just take it over.、Mm, and so,、right. as this progresses, it is an interesting and important thing to think about: what would the world look like if all of the most advanced technology companies and all of the most cutting-edge technologies were being developed in China? That would be a very different world, and it bears thinking about because it's not necessarily something that we can control. It's not necessarily something we can manipulate, but Mm-hmm. As with everything in capitalism, and as with everything in a free economy, what dictates these sorts of things are purchases, and where、right. you spend your money. And so, we ought to be wary about things like you see a lot of Chinese phones moving abroad and things like that. Like, I, I'm not saying we、uh-huh. should necessarily not embrace them, but、right. we should think about the fact that the dominance the United States has had technologically for the last. Mm-hmm. Hundred years、right. has given it a lot of clout and has made its rivals unable to compete with it in any kind of significant、mm-hmm. way. To the extent that that becomes China, anybody that they see as a rival, like the United States、right. or even like the European Union, will struggle to maintain themselves. And so, I yeah, I, I don't know where that goes, but the power of our spending is something that I think we all need to remember all the time, and we should use our、mm-hmm. money kind of. Judiciously, for the West, for the West, not the East, not the East. The East is great, just not China. Okay, just not China, everybody. Just not. But I mean, authoritarian governments. Right, but wouldn't it affect the government if they were these successful like companies who are trying to reach out to other countries and make money? It's a good question. Wouldn't they have to open up the markets? Wouldn't they have to like change everything? Because then you're putting a lot of spotlight on these governments, and this is like the whole world looking at them. You're right, right? and I, I think keeping their kind of authoritarian state. Would really prevent a company like Baidu. Like, imagine Google under like an authoritarian government. It would be really hard to trust them then. And so, I think that that will hobble a lot of these companies' efforts abroad. You're absolutely right. And I mean, and I'm sure things like the Baidu and、uh, the the Alibaba, whatever. I'm sure、mm-hmm. you can find like English websites and French and Italian or blah, 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 whatever. But I mean, wouldn't it just like aren't there already certain companies in place that already have that sort of convenience in those markets that other companies might want to expand into that they might not be able to do or have the same success because there's already companies that have been established there. It's possible. I don't know how Amazon performs outside the country, right? Like, I don't know. They're pretty U.S. focused, but they are increasingly dominating the U.K. Expanding in India, expanding in a lot of other countries, but they're pretty U.S. centric, yeah. But like, see, they're already like they already have their feelers in there, right? Like once they establish themselves, and I mean that's a company that when I think about a company that probably earns its reputation,、mm. like they could do it anywhere because the 
CEO is like a serious guy. He's serious about working. He hires people that are just serious. Like that's that's like the com- that's like the company motto, right? Being serious, work hard. Yeah, just work yeah, hard. Yeah, they do. You know? They like, do work very not, hard. Yeah. We're not. We're, we're not. We're not here to work forty hours a week. And if you are, please leave the company if you're not here yeah, for at least sure, eighty. Sure. Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty hardcore. <laughs> right, and I mean, and I know they get like a lot of a lot of crap for it. And I'm sure if I were an Amazon employee, I wouldn't be happy there. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm with you. I I completely I completely agree. But just like on the China thing and like them changing their government, we thought, or I say we, I think a lot of people believed that they would eventually move into democracy in the same way that Korea did, in the same way that Taiwan did. Mm-hmm. Like remember that Taiwan right. and Korea, in the same way as China, were authoritarian dictatorships all the way up until the 80s. And into like mm-hmm. I think I, I don't remember exactly when they moved to democracy, but sometime in the eighties or the nineties, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened was they industrialized rapidly. They become much more wealthy than they had large democracy movements, and the dictator stepped down, and they had increasingly robust democracies, and they kind mm-hmm. of joined the first world in terms of being much more sophisticated and in terms of being very stable and having stable economic growth and all of that. China in 1989 was going through the same thing and they had Mm -hmm. perhaps the largest democracy movement the world's ever seen. They had the largest demonstrations the world has ever seen and they got shut down hard. Unlike Taiwan, unlike Korea, the government valued their authority and valued the safety of the regime above these desires that were being expressed. And granted they were a communist regime and still much more anti-capitalist at the time. So democracy was much more antithetical to the structures of their government and like the core concepts of their government than it was in Taiwan or it was in Korea. But that being Mm -hmm. said, very few people at that time thought that they would maintain their authoritarian communist state as they have so consistently through this whole period as they got wealthier as that people got better educated and more sophisticated i think most people thought that the democracy movement would become robust and take over again as it did throughout the rest of east asia it hasn't Mm. and it's very likely that i i think the government is strong enough i think they're smart enough they're canny enough smart enough i think they're smart enough and they're canny enough to prevent their own collapse and i think that it's it's Mm. entirely possible that they won't collapse and you won't have democracy take over in china in the near future i'm not sure that them expanding their companies abroad and really embracing the global markets will lead them to democratization i mean but it'll definitely force them to change i think i mean they'd have to right i mean under that kind of scrutiny like especially if if you're a foreign power letting this like company into your country, I mean, I don't know. You're right. They're going to service. I mean, there'd be concerns. There'd be, they're going to get everybody up in arms against them if they're trying to expand. And it, this is what you see in the U S right. Where you see not, not even just with the protectionist stuff, but stuff with like Huawei and ZTE uh-huh. and the fact that like ZTE sold things to regimes that had a lot of sanctions like Iran and like North Korea. You see, like, Huawei is maybe possibly controlled by the government of China. 
And so they maybe possibly put things in their phones that allow the government to tap in or track or control something. It's hard to know. Like, it's hard for us to know. But the U.S. security agencies are concerned enough that they've essentially banned Huawei from the states. Why is this? There are potentially Mm -hmm. reasons. The fact that the government might have some sort of control over it, it's going to get people's defenses up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so... I think that's about enough for this week. Maybe we'll revisit some of these things in a future episode. Yeah, if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can find our show notes at subjectradio.com slash WWOTS slash 021. I was trying to do a unison thing there with you. Yeah, not quite, not quite. Next time. And I guess I will talk to you next week, Mike? Yeah, you certainly will. All right, man. Have a good one. All right, later. Bye. long time talking about old people we did it, it meandered yeah. a bit I, you know i'm not gonna lie it was most of that was was useful was, i'd say it was mostly good like three quarters of it yeah i thought it was yeah. a good conversation it didn't i didn't expect to go into all of that but it yeah. just kind of kind of kept going yeah you care about this it's important to you. it is important to me yeah so
which one of these things do you want to... I think we've got to hit the second one. Okay. Not the European one. The, the uh, okay. one that was second on our list. All right. This one. Shoot. 